We're going to keep, uh, keep up in our study in the book of Titus. You can go ahead and open to Titus chapter 2. And as you do so, it's been said that there are three difficult things for a man to do. First is to climb a fence leaning toward you. Anybody try that? Climbing a fence leaning towards you, kind of going backwards. Kiss a girl leaning away from you. Not so easy. And three, for a single guy to talk about women. That's what's happening tonight. <laughs> Yesterday evening, we had the elders meeting, and Chris Hamilton and I sat together at dinner, and he says to me, hey, do you want me to preach tomorrow night? I said, why? He's like, because you know nothing about what you have to preach about tomorrow night. You are outside of your area of expertise. I know nothing about women. I'll admit that. I did some research, and I felt like that guy who just saw the picture of that book. Yep, there's a lot to know about women. You inexplicable, mystifying, wonderful individuals. Uh, Google is my friend these days, and we've confirmed last week that Google is always right. Right? Come on. That's like easily accessible. That's my primary source. Come on. You know, there is a mystery to women, isn't there? <clears throat> For example, one day she wants to be cared for, and the next day she goes into 100% independence mode. I, need, I do not need you. Remember my story about I can open my own door. Get away from me. Or she wants flowers. Who wanted flowers on Wednesday? Everybody, come on. Don't be ashamed of it. I even wanted flowers on Wednesday. <laughs> And the next day she says, stop giving me gifts. Or finally, uh, one minute she's like, hey, this is going too fast. Slow down. When are we going to meet our parents? Mystifying, inexplicable you are. Even Proverbs was confused about women. Proverbs 30, verses 18 and 19. Agur is the writer. This is what he says. There are four things I don't understand. And the fourth one is the pinnacle of his confusion is the way of a man with a woman. Super confusing, even to some of the smartest writers in Scripture. And uh, as we talked about last week, the Bible introduces the relationship of men and women at the very beginning. Remember what happened when Adam saw Eve for the first time? What happened? He became a poet. The first poem in history. It's in Hebrew. And he said, wow, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's truly, there's an exclaiming of his excitement and enthusiasm in Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember if there is a similar saying about Adam being created? Do you remember if there's a verse that says the angels looked at Adam and said, wow, that's one fine creature. There's no verse like that. The Bible sets up women in a unique category from the very Beginning. So yes, Chris Hamilton or John Scott should be up here, not I, but you're stuck with me. Who doesn't want to hear a sermon about women from a single guy? Come on. Come on. So what we've done for the last few weeks is talked about men. Men's ex- God's expectation of men in the church, in relationships, in their careers, in their community. And then last week we started talking about God's expectations of women And we're going to spend this week and then next talking about God's expectations of women. 
And keep in mind, ladies, as I kind of prayed at the beginning and talked about that prayer, that Christ is the center and he's the foundation. Keep in mind that as you pursue these qualities, this is the direction of your life, not the perfection. That's not going to be reached in this life because of what we see in 1 John chapter 3, that God promises perfection when we see Jesus face to face. The same is true of men. You're not going to arrive at the qualities of Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, until you see Christ face to face. Therefore, judge one another with patience. Because the direction is the pursuit, and we should be aspiring and improving, rather than expecting excellence always or perfection. The environment of God's grace, as we just sang about, should be the climate of our relationships. We should be giving each other grace as we wholeheartedly, sincerely, with all effort, pursue the qualities in this passage. And as you interact with one another, as I interact with all of you, both genders, we need to remember what the Bible expects of us in 1 Timothy 5.2. Interact with one another as spiritual siblings. That's the standard. That is the expectation. And so for women, the qualities we'll talk about tonight and just adding to the three from last week, this should be what you are hoping for. This is what you should be recognizing in older women and then imitating them. That's the whole point of discipleship from last week. And then hopefully you are realizing those qualities in yourself. Men, same thing. You are recognizing this in older men. You are imitating them. You're pursuing those godly men. And then thereby you are realizing those same qualities in your own life. But specifically for women, if you look at verse 5, the reason that all of these qualities are given for women, it says at the very end of verse 5, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Literally blasphemed or disparaged. Do you remember the very first question in the Bible? In Genesis chapter 3. Anybody remember the very first question? Who asked it? Satan asked us. What did he say? Did God say? The very first attack in human history was against God's word. The very first question was the question of doubting the word of God. And here, Paul says, women, if you live in a certain way, the word of God will not be disparaged. It will not be maligned. It will not be mocked. It will not be literally blasphemed. As Satan tried to malign, disparage, and blaspheme the word of God in Genesis 3, your life can actually move that in a different direction. You can be a force that resists people who malign the word of God. That's the importance of what we're talking about. There is an element that the word of God will stand on its own two feet. It's perfect. It's pure. You don't need to defend the word of God. But at the same time, when we evangelize to people, we are representing the word of God. We are representing God the Father. We're representing the gospel. We talked about those three primary implications from this passage. And so for women, I want to make sure you understand why Paul writes this. It's so that the word of God that was once attacked by Satan at the very beginning of human history, you and your life can actually push back against that. And I hope that gives you at least some motivation to pursue the qualities that Paul expects. So last week we talked about the first three. The first one being that you are to have a reputation of holiness, a reputation of holiness. If you look at verse 2, Paul says you are to be dignified. That's where we get that idea, is that you are to be reverent. 
And if you remember, I said that this has to do with a woman who was a temple priestess. She was set apart from the rest of the community to serve the gods. And so there was an expectation of chastity and devotion, full commitment to that deity. Paul picks up that language from the cults of his era and says, when the Christian woman lives her life, her life is to be characterized by purity, by dignity, by reverence. In other words, holistic holiness. The second quality was restraint in speech. And we get that from the statement, not a malicious gossip. She's not a malicious gossip. And that is in verse three, right in the middle of the verse. And I said that that is the word for diabolos, the devil. Of the 38 uses in the New Testament, 35 of the 38 refer specifically to Satan. There are three that do not. And that's one of the three. And in all three of those, they refer to speech. So in other words, is your speech seasoned with salt? Is it give grace to the hearer or is it slander? Is it an attack like Satan attacks God's word and God's people? Number three is devotion to discipleship. And we got that from the phrases that they may encourage in verse four, for example, in verse four. So they may teach the the women to be in a certain way, the older to the younger. So there's a context here of discipleship. Discipleship for the purpose of this desires that you have. Do you pursue the right desires? An older woman can help you figure that out. Are you making the right decisions? Are you going in the right direction in life? So the godly woman is teachable and is teaching. Discipleship, I said, goes both ways in this context. Older to younger, and then younger are listening, and ultimately then they become those who disciple others. So those are the first three qualities that Paul expects of women that are supposed to be healthy. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago? Healthy, sound. They represent somebody who is appropriate and proper in the dynamic of that community. Number four is a disciplined life. So number four, discipline in life. You are disciplined in your life. We get that in verse three, not enslaved too much wine. You're not enslaved too much wine. Why is Paul attaching that to women? Typically, drunkenness has to do with men, right? I mean, if you think about culturally speaking, most societies, men are those who are drunk, certainly in the Russian community, in the Russian society. I'm exempt from that statement. I don't drink. But that's generally what people think about, when they, who they think about when they think about drunkenness. So Paul uniquely attaches that quality to women because there were actual gods and deities that were worshipped through drunkenness. And they involved everybody. They involved kids, they involved women, men, all classes. It didn't matter who you were in the society. One of those gods was Dionysius. Some of you might have heard about him. He's the god who was worshipped through ecstasy, through drunkenness. You had to lose all self-control. And then you enter the sphere of worshipping this god. Some of the oldest pottery ever found in antiquity, in the Western civilization, that is, has to do with the worship of this God. And so there are plates uh, and, and cups and various other items in the household, daily use, that feature this God, a God of drunkenness. Grapes are typically associated with him, and women were committed to the worship of this God in centuries and centuries before Christ, and then certainly in the, this time period in the first century and beyond. 
So what I think we need to understand is that there was a unique element that women were also drinking and getting drunk. And Paul says that is not how a Christian woman lives her life. And I think that it's applicable to us today. Our society is obsessed with alcohol. And that includes both genders. And so Paul says, as a Christian, that is not what characterizes you. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. You are not characterized by drunkenness. That is to say, you have self-control. You have moderation in what you do and in what you drink. But also there's an element of discernment. Discernment as you think about discipline. There's a balance. If you remember, I talked about Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 19. Put that verse down or that passage down somewhere in your Bible. That passage, Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 19, talks about a balanced life. And that balanced life is promised to somebody who's a believer in God. There are no excesses in your life. It says, don't be too righteous, don't be too wicked. In other words, you live a balanced life, and that certainly is the intent behind this phrase, that you are not enslaved to much wine. But you're also sensible. If you look at verse 5, you are sensible. And that's the connection to this life of discipline and life of moderation. In other words, you're not excessive. You're not just all poverty or all wealth. You appreciate that everything is coming from God as a gift. You're able to laugh at yourself and you're able to be serious. You understand your context. We've talked about the meaning of this word of sensibility that appears multiple times. Back in 1.8, it appears in 2.2, it appears in 2.5, it appears in 2.6, it appears in 2.12. Paul keeps going back to this idea that as a Christian, you are balanced. You're sensible. And so as a woman, you appreciate the fine things of life. You like Mont Blanc and you like Louis Vuitton. But you can also live in poverty if necessary. If that's the lot that God has given you, that's how you live. Philippians 4.13 talks about where Paul, he's in prison. He says, I have learned how to live with means and without. And again, this is Paul's expectation of a woman. We talked about the same idea being expected of a man in chapter 2, verse 2. But specifically, when we talk about discipline, we are talking about your passions, your passions. Verse five says, you are to be sensible, disciplined, balanced, pure. That's the next word. That's your passions. You are to be pure, just like the temple priestess. You have a high standard of morality. And the word that Paul chooses here is actually used to refer to the purity of the word of God. In the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Psalm 12, verse 6, for example, or Psalm 19:9, it's the same vocabulary. As pure as the word of God is, which is pure, it has no errors. It is perfect. It is flawless. It is complete. Paul uniquely says, I'm going to use that word that describes something that is so divine and unique to a woman's life as she pursues purity. It's supposed to be holistic. Again, remember, this is the direction. This is not the perfection. But that is the expectation from what Paul is putting in front of us in Titus chapter 2. In 1 Timothy 5.2, as I already mentioned, the same vocabulary is used for men to interact with women as siblings in purity. So Paul's expectation of purity is the same for both men and women. Be pure in conversations, in your pursuits, in morality, 
Conversations are a unique and interesting element. In Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, if you haven't read those passages, you should. It's about the seductress. It's about the adulterous woman and how she operates to capture the man. And there's good messages you can find on our church's website preached on those passages. Harry Walls has a fantastic message if you want to look that up. But the implication being, is your conversation, is your speech intentional? Is it thoughtful? Is it pure? Or is it marred and impure? Is there any inkling and movement toward what you read about in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7? 5, 3, for example, says of this kind of a woman, her lips drip honey. Smoother than oil is her speech. Proverbs 6, 24 says, the tongue of an adulteress is smooth. Proverbs 7.21 says, with her flattering lips, she seduces him. So in other words, do your conversations betray the intent of your heart? Is there something deeper and inappropriate and immoral when you talk to men? It's a bit heavy. I get that. But purity is expected of both genders biblically. P- speech is powerful. And so Paul says, make sure it's pure. And of course, this applies to your wardrobe. I'm not going to get into that too far. You should talk to older women around you who can guide you and help you as you think through that. The Bible does speak plenty about modesty. Maybe just a principle to keep in mind is your wardrobe does reflect your heart. And if Christ possesses your heart, then ultimately that should be visible. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, another significant passage addressing women in the church. In verse 9, this is what Paul says. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothes, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and, or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So Paul says, do not prioritize the external. Make sure that your life and your reputation is of good works. Those who make a claim to godliness. In first Peter chapter three, in verses three and four, this is what Peter says. Your adornment must not be merely external. So in other words, it's appropriate to look nice. But make sure it's not merely external, the braiding of the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit that is precious in the sight of God. So in other words, what is your pursuit? That's what Paul and Peter are saying. What are you pursuing ultimately? Is it simply the external or is there an element? I want to be precious in the sight of God, even in the way I dress. So talk to the women in in your life and they can help you if you have any kind of doubt about that. So Paul, by application, says, make sure your speech is pure. Make sure your desires are pure. What are you expecting in life? Are your desires characterized by full purity? So that's your passions. The second category is your priorities. Your priorities. Are your priorities characterized by discipline? I think that's the application. In other words, how you spend your time. Is it characterized by discipline? I think within that, there's three applications. First, it's in ministry, it's in your career, and it's in your family. Most of us here are single. 
So therefore, until God gives you a spouse and a family, the way you begin to apply this is to think, okay, what do I do that should demonstrate discipline in my life? Well, you're a Christian. Therefore, ministry is your immediate sphere of application. Every single Christian has a spiritual gift. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. That's what Romans 12 says. That's what 1 Peter 4 says. That's what Ephesians 4 says. Those are your four passages on spiritual gifts in the New Testament. And every single believer has a spiritual gift. And every single believer is expected to apply that spiritual gift within the context of the Christian community to edify each other. So as you begin to think about your spiritual gift that God has given you personally, and he expects you to apply it in the Christian community, does your time reflect this priority? It certainly should not be imbalanced. Remember, Ecclesiastes 7. So in other words, you have to find that balance. How much time are you spending on ministry? Does it consume all of your life, and yet you still have to work, and you still have to spend time with family, and you still have to develop friendships, and if you have a desire for marriage, you still have to develop those friendships as well. So prioritizing those things and being balanced is an extremely practical application for what Paul says. You need to be sensible. This is a subcategory of sensibility that we're talking about. So the first application is ministry. The second application is your career, your job. I would say that everybody here has a job or perhaps you're in between jobs. And if you're a full-time student, that is your priority in regards to your career at some point in the future. So that's the area that we need to apply this sensibility to. I think within that, you have to understand that you have to have balance between your work and your ministry. Am I actually balanced? Am I fulfilling the expectations of my boss at work? Or am I just showing up and kind of half present, half not present because I'm always thinking about the church? Well, then you should go work at the church. We have a lot of positions open for you. We need people. There's somebody always leaving. We need to hire somebody. Right, Stephanie? We have 350 people working here. We need more. But you have to think about, okay, your desires and God is directing you. If you're a godly woman, how is God going to use your skill, even in the context of ministry? There's a couple of things to consider when we talk about work. There's Marcus Aurelius an emperor in Rome at the end of the second century who said this, at dawn, when you have trouble getting out of bed, tell yourself, I have to go to work. As a human, what do I have to complain about? If I'm going to do what I was born to do, the things I was brought into this world to do, is this what I was created for? To huddle under the blankets and stay warm? This is from a secular philosopher at the end of the second century. He says, what were you created to do? To stay in bed all day or to work and be productive in the community? That's not even a Christian saying this, but that's exactly the expectation of a Christian in the New Testament. Excel still more at work. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, for example. Excel still more in what God has given you to do. And so the expectation is you work hard, you pursue excellence, but you don't become a workaholic. And my simple definition of workaholism workaholism is your identity is derived from your career. You begin to measure yourself and your values and your worth based on your work. 
men and women, that's applicable equally. And so if that's you, which pushes then you to work 80 hours or 100 hours or 120 hours and beyond, you should check yourself. Am I actually deriving my identity from my career? Uh, Challies, Tim Challies, who's an author and a, uh, a pretty popular online, he says this about work. Work is not significant only when it utilizes my full capacity or my full cap- capabilities. Work is not significant only when it offers unusual challenge or special opportunity. Work is not significant only when it is measurable in dollars and cents or praise and compliments. Work has intrinsic significance because it gives me the opportunity to do something with joy, with joy in the Lord. I can do my work in such a way that it glorifies God, or I can do it in such a way that it dishonors him. Anything I can do to God's glory has significance. It has great significance. But the imbalance becomes when I said you only find your identity or you primarily find your identity in work. It was Madonna 30 years ago who said this about her career. Nobody works the way I work. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being And then I get to another stage, and then I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. And I think that's a pretty good explanation or an illustration of somebody who derives their identity from work. I have to keep proving to everyone around you that I'm somebody. And anything less than that will be unsatisfactory. And so Paul says, make sure you live a disciplined life, a sensible life, even in your career. So yes, you excel in your Commitments, let me say it that way. You excel in your commitments. You excel in everything that you decide to do. And then the balance has to kick in. I would say this, as long as God gives you opportunities and time and finances, and even if you have a desire to be married and have a family, but that's not in your immediate uh, future, in your sphere of life right now, pursue education. Keep working hard at your career. Just remember, you have to be balanced. You have to find time for ministry and you have to find time for friendships. But the application is the Bible doesn't tell you you can't keep going in school. Just remember the opportunity cost. There's an opportunity cost for everything. And if you say yes to something, you're therefore by default saying no to something else. And I say this to a room full of individuals who have a career like myself. And we've all made those decisions. And some of us who are older, we've made those decisions. And we'll look back and say, was that the right decision? To work on Friday nights till midnight and miss Bible study week after week after week. Or skip church. And always saying yes to your superior, even though you do have a chance to say, no, you know what? I'm a Christian. I'd like to be committed to church and that community. 
I'll work Wednesday night or Tuesday night or Thursday night or Saturday if necessary, but I'm not going to sacrifice my Christian community. And I'm not saying it's easy to do that, especially if you're just starting out. But I do think the biblical expectation is that work hard, be balanced. And if you're not balanced, there is an opportunity cost. And you might not have friends because you're always working or all your friends will be at work. But excel in your commitments as you live a sensible life. Secondly, and I speak as a hypocrite because I'm single, prepare for marriage. Prepare for marriage. And I think that's the biblical expectation. What are the older women supposed to do in this text? Look at verse 4. To encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, verse 5, to be workers at home, to be kind, to be subject to their own husbands, so the word of God is not dishonored. Now, that is specifically to those who are married, obvious. But as you desire that and aspire toward that, and you spend time with women who are married and have kids, whether they're freshly married or they've been married for a long time, I think there's an application that if this is your desire, you should probably learn how to do that. And even if God doesn't give you the desires of your heart for whatever reason, there's still an expectation that you can use many of those skills that you learn in the context of the church. And I think that's when you consider, hey, I want to get involved in children's ministry because I love kids. Naturally, God gave gave me a desire to love kids and I want to express that desire in that context. I don't say this in any way to condemn or criticize or to make you feel more painful if you want kids and God hasn't given them to you. I'm just telling you, what does the Bible say? And remember what I said last week, you are God's daughter. You're precious in his sight. He's the one who's leading you by holding your hand every single moment of every single day for your entire life. Psalm 37, 23, 24, if you need a verse for that statement. Psalm 37, 23, 24. He's holding your hand And it says, so that you do not fall down and hit your head. Because that's a precious picture. And if you're a woman aspiring to be godly, that's how God views you. As his daughter, precious to the king of kings, precious to the God of the universe, who carefully, intricately, magnificently wove you in your mother's womb. And now you are living within his plan even if it's sometimes is painful, then your desires are delayed in their gratification. But until then, Paul says, live a sensible life. Excel in your commitments. Prepare for marriage if that is your desire and if that is what God has allowed you to experience. And number three is don't forget that there is a cost to the decisions that you make. There's a cost Always ask yourself, what's my heart motivation for this decision? Because it comes with a cost. Why am I doing this? Why did I come to LA from New York or Texas or Tennessee, especially if you came from Texas? Why did you come here? (laughs) But ask yourself, what am I doing this for? And I'm not saying the right answer is always John MacArthur. There are good churches in many places on this planet. And I'm not saying... You should leave our church. Stay here. We want you to stay here. Right, Hamilton? Yeah. But just ask yourself, why am I here? What am I doing? 
And again, applying the principles of balance, I want to be in a good church that will teach me to be a godly woman and give me a community of friends where Lord willing, in his own perfect timing, maybe he will give you a husband and a family. But just ask yourself, what is the motivation of my heart? What is the motivation for me furthering my education? Why am I working so hard? All that to say, Proverbs 31 is one of those passages that gives you a balanced woman. Go ahead and open it, and that's going to be our conclusion for tonight before we go into discussion groups. Proverbs 31 is one of those chapters that is epic. It tries to give us a picture of the balanced woman that applies all those principles that you see in front of you on the screen. And I'll read much of this passage only so that it can be in your mind as you go into discussion groups and think about what does the Bible expect of an excellent woman? In verse 10, it says, An excellent woman who can find her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She's like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. There's your industrious entrepreneur. She rises also while it's still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. That is a hardworking woman. Everybody's still sleeping. She's up taking care of everyone, even the maidens, the servants in the house. She considers a field and buys it. She is a real estate agent from her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She invests into the wine industry. Let's say it that way. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp doesn't go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff. She cares for the poor. Her hands grasp the spindle. She works with her own hands. She's not just a manager. She actually works hard. She extends her hand to the poor. She stretches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household. For her household are clothed with scarlet. You never have to apply that version in California. No snow here, right? She makes covering for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. There's your balance of appreciating the fine things in life. Purple in the ancient world was a very expensive and valuable and rare garment. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. In other words, there's a reputation for her household that is extended into the community. She opens her mouth in wisdom. Let me back up a little bit. She makes, verse 24, linen garments and sells them, supplies belts to the tradesmen, again, industrious. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She's optimistic. She opens her mouth in wisdom and she teaches and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. In other words, her tongue is seasoned with salt. She gives grace to the hearer. She looks well to the ways of her household, doesn't eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, he praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. In other words, there's a deep love and respect Don't you sense respect from her husband for his wife here? He's not treating her as a second tier, lower gender. Unfortunately, so many societies do that. That's not how it's supposed to be. Many daughters have done nobly. You excel them all. Verse 30, charm is deceitful. 
Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. You've got a balanced perspective. A godly woman, that's the whole point of the ending of the chapter, but who works and excels and is creative and unique and finds a field and buys it and opens up a business here and works with the tradesmen. Certainly the implication here is she's running an operation. There's no way she's doing all this by herself. She's got people that she is overseeing, and yet she's prioritizing her house. Her kids are not neglected. Her servants are neglected. Her husband isn't neglected. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. That is super difficult. I have no idea how she pulls this off. But that's Proverbs 31. If God gave you a gift, whether it's real estate or finance or teaching or uh, communication or marketing, whatever it is, And you're able to apply that in the context of your family dynamic. Let's say once you're married. The Bible doesn't prohibit you from doing that. Again, remember the priority is the house. That's Titus 2. That's 1 Timothy 2. But the Bible does say, hey, if you're able to figure this out, do it. But I would say for us as singles, the application is this is a standard. This is a godly individual who pursues and really excels at what God has entrusted to her as stewardship. You should be thinking about the talents, proverbs and parables rather, because that's the application. God is entrusted with you and it's his prerogative if he gave you five, three or one talent. And if the fruit of your work will be 60 fold, a hundred fold or 30 fold. But every faithful steward in the Bible has a return on his or her investment. The unfaithful do not. And so as you look at your life, Wherever you are right now, maybe you've made mistakes and you're resetting your life. Reset it in this direction. And then God says, you will have a reputation that is worthy of praise. This is not just an Old Testament standard as if something flipped in the New Testament. Go to Acts 16 if you want. Lydia was also a businesswoman and had a household and started a church in Philippi, the first church in Europe in Christian history. And Paul was one of the first Preachers there. That's Lydia. And there's many women mentioned in Romans 16, for example, those who are working hard in the context of ministry, but also are professionals. You can read that chapter in your own time. So what I want to say is this. In Titus chapter 2, if you want to go back to that text, Paul says, women, You have a reputation of holiness. You should have restraint in your speech. You should be devoted to discipleship and you should be living a disciplined life. And you do that so that the word of God will not be dishonored. We'll talk about two more next week, a reputation of kindness and love for family. And if God gives you that, then that's what you're to pursue. Until then, I hope we as singles can say, I know what God wants from me in this season. And maybe you're one of those individuals who has no desire for family. There's one verse that applies to you then. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35 sets the standard for the single man or the single woman. The norm is marriage. 
But there are exceptions if you have the gift of singleness. In other words, God has given you a stronger desire to be uniquely used in the context of his church. It could be here. It could be abroad. You have no idea where God will take you. But if you have that desire to be a part where you fully focus your time and attention, and you prepare for it, of course, to advance the gospel, then verse 35 says this. The middle of the verse. You are to promote what is appropriate, and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. This is for singles. So we are in that season right now. And until God changes that status, married, we are to promote, advance in, focus on what is appropriate, and to have undistracted devotion to the Lord. I love that line. Because what Paul says is you are to be a personal assistant to the Lord. And I've said this before in prior years, that that image is a true personal assistant, an executive assistant who is always on call. And there are people that have a miserable life because they're always on call for a really bad person. But they make a lot of money, but they have no life. I met one of these individuals a couple years ago. And she left the craft family. There's no craft family. She was working for the family, the parents the actual owners of the Kraft family, and she had no life. She's a Christian woman, had no life in her 30s. She always was on call. In the middle of the night, every time, she told me. And she said, I'm leaving. I'm going to spend my years working for the Billy Graham Association. And so she's been doing that for a few years. And she's also at the top, the executive assistant to the uh, second in command, right below Franklin Graham. In other words, she's a, such a unique individual, so hardworking that God has allowed her to advance in her career as she desired to be, desires rather to be married. But having interacted with her, you have somebody who's so competent, so humble, so godly, and said, you know what, I'm done being a personal assistant to the family, the craft family. I'm going to do this for the Lord. I'm not saying you have to do that. You can stay working for Tesla or Mitsubishi or Deloitte, whatever company you work for. But remember, the priority as singles now, we are personal assistants to the Lord. And if you say, this is what I want, I don't want marriage, I don't want kids, I don't want a husband, then that should be your priority. Always serving the Lord. Let me pray toward that end, and then we'll go into discussion groups. Lord God, we thank you for your clear, pure, relevant word. While it's written thousands of years ago, we're still able to glean wisdom for us today. We thank you that it's very clear that this is your standard. This is the, your expectation for us. But none of, us can be, none of this can be done apart from your Holy Spirit as he sustains us in a life of diligence and sensibility and devotion to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are as singles in a unique season. And we wrestle through thoughts of discontentment. We wrestle through thoughts of desires that we know are godly and biblical, and yet they're not realized. Help us to redirect our thoughts toward what is eternal. Trusting you that contentment is not going to be found in a man. It's not going to be found in a woman. It's not going to be found in little people in the house. It's going to be found in you and you alone. Help us to think that way, to always be 
joyful with whatever you have allotted to us in this season of singleness. And for those who are married, we thank you that they have become models for us to imitate. A number of those families here have lived godly lives, have raised godly kids, investing in godly grandkids. Thank you for their example. I thank you for the Hamiltons. I thank you for the Scots. I thank you for the McCarthys. Thank you that they've been faithful for decades to live out Titus 2. And help us all to be humble enough to appeal to their experience and their wisdom and to imitate their life of fruitfulness and faithfulness. And make us fruitful and faithful as we aspire to live for your glory, not our own satisfaction. We pray this to the honor of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.